0: To our new passengers, aloha and welcome. As you board, please move across your car to make room for everyone, and kindly offer available seating to those needing special assistance. The show will begin momentarily. Thank you. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. Welcome to Dave's Disney View Podcast, provided on our own version of the information highway in the sky. For those of you standing, please hold onto the handrails throughout our journey and stay clear of the doors. For the comfort of others, no smoking, please. Thank you. Dave's Disney View is a look at the Walt Disney World Resort and sometimes beyond, as seen through the eyes of Dave, a frequent visitor, a one-time cast member, And an engineer who simply enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. Now, please keep your party together and put on your virtual mouse ears. And by all means, enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to
1: another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I've got another guest, and his name is Sam Genaway, and he's the author of Walt and the Promise of Progress City, a new book that's out that you can pick up at Amazon, and I'll give you some locations on that in a little while. But let's introduce Sam. Sam, how are you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. And yourself? I am doing fantastic. It's, you know, it's always good to stop for a while in the day and talk about Disney, and uh, makes it all worthwhile somehow. I
2: think that's very true, and since I'm calling you right now from Disneyland, that seems to be even more
1: appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> what more can I ask for? you got the whole Disney spirits go- going on. That's right. So, Sam, um, I, you know, I heard about your book, you know, and I uh, was kind of interested because it was a, it's a kind of an interesting backstory into more of Walt's vision of what was going on. And before I really get into the book, I'd, l- I'd be curious if you could tell us a little bit more about you and how you got interested in the topic.
2: Well, well, certainly. Uh, I, I make my living as an urban planner. That's my day job, and I write about Disney, theme parks, world fairs, and amusement parks as, as a hobby. I've been doing that for the last few years, and, and in a weird sort of way, placemaking for cities and placemaking for theme parks, there's a, there's a lot of crossover between the two, so it's, it's, a, it's a great blend between a hobby and a living. For Disneyland in particular, I grew up in Whittier, which is very close to Disneyland. And uh, Throughout the years, I was, I'm as old as the Matterhorn, so you guys can kind of figure out that age from there. I'm as old as a mountain is the way I like to describe it. And uh, My mom used to bring me here and my older brothers here really quite often, because if you really think about it, up until about 1982, you used to be able to come to Disneyland. You paid a relatively inexpensive general admission to get into the park. And it got expensive only if you bought tickets to go to the rides or if you bought food. Well, we're cheap. My mom would buy tickets for us to get in. She would never buy us tickets for any of the rides. And uh, she'd never buy us any food we'd eat out of the car. But we would come almost once a month when I was growing up. And that's how I realized that I got really entranced with Disneyland, uh, Disney theme parks. And in particular, the Carousel of Progress attraction, which was free at the time, so I used to go on that every <laughs> visit and uh, model, the Progress City model that used to be upstairs from there.
1: And the Progress City model, for those who aren't in the know, is uh, Walt's vision for what he thought of as something called Progress City, that he hadn't quite envisioned where he was going to put it or what he was going to do with it, if I'm not mistaken, but he had this, That's this right. grand plan for something. And uh, there's a a portion of it that's still available, and it's only a portion. Uh, If you go on the TTA, you kind of pass by it. If you're at Walt Disney World, you you pass by it kind of quickly. Um, And I think there's a voiceover that says something. It's Walt's vision of the future. And it gives you a taste Mm -hmm. of it anyway. But
2: it's so sad because if you looked at the original model, the original model had almost 20,000 tr- uh, moving vehicles. It had the buildings were lit up. Um, they were it, there was actually interior furniture in these little teeny model buildings, and it's about, it was about four times the size of what you see today at Walt Disney World. It was truly an amazing model, and if you're like an eight to twelve year old, you know you can imagine that your entire time you're just going. I wonder if this is real. I wonder if this could really be built. And here it is, you know, 40 years later, I tried to answer that
1: question. Yeah, it, it's an amazing thing. And, you know, he really did have this, this remarkable vision for something. And clearly, uh, as he was developing up his ideas on what he was going to do next, uh, I think somewhere along the way, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he had the idea of actually developing uh, this in the, uh, in the Florida property.
2: Well, that was it. That was the whole reason to buy the Florida property. What, what Walt did is in his life, he, he, he reinvented animation. He reinvented the expectations that public had for animation. He really elevated uh, what was sort of an inexpensive, uh, an inexpensive commercial endeavor and really turned it into an art form. And so we look at it much differently because of the influence of Walt Disney. For us who are theme park fans, he did the same thing with amusement parks. He, ever since he was a little boy, loved amusement parks. And he loved going to them, and he used to hang out at them all the time. But he, he never really he really never liked them. But he he liked going to them, and so he tried to elevate that as well and change expectations with Disneyland. And just towards the end of his death, he I think had kind of a higher calling and realized that there was maybe something more that he could do for the world. And so he at the time was trying to invent three different communities. He was trying to invent a School of the Arts, which turned out to be Cal Arts, which actually did get built. Mm-hmm. He tried to reinvent what the mountain resort would be, and so he tried to create a project called Mineral King, which is going to be in the Sierra Nevada Mountains, and he wanted to create a city of the future, a prototype city, so that people could come, they can visit, and they can see what the best of American technology and thinking could be, and it was going to be a city of 20,000 people in the middle of the Florida project, and it was going to be property, and you know, it was going to be called Epcot. That's not what got built, obviously.
1: Obviously. Uh, there's more of a theme park feel to it, a little more forced in some ways.
2: Um, uh, it, it's, it's really, really Epcot today is one of my favorite theme parks But ultimately it is what it is Which is a permanent World's Fair And mm-hmm. it has many of the attributes of a World's Fair uh, uh, More so than Breaking new ground uh, Like Disneyland did
1: Interesting So your, your book uh, You kind of took on the, the, uh, the perspective for the book Because you were really interested in the urban planning And this, and this idea of Progress City um, Can you tell us a little bit about What, you, what we'd find in there?
2: Sure. Well, the book is really uh, my exploration of going backwards to try to find out if this concept of Progress City, if this concept of Epcot would have worked. And and I I wanted to figure out why Walt, a guy who was a show business person, was so interested in city building or placemaking or or reinventing the urban experience. So as I learned through his life, he was constantly creating his own world and, and was the master of his own world in his animated films his backgrounds were highly detailed, more than a lot of the other animation studios, and they created very plausible real world in which a talking deer could talk, and you'd believe it instantly. So he, he did this in animation, and then he, he started doing the same thing with live-action films, and then he tried to apply it three-dimensionally with, with Disneyland. Um, I, I, I think that, for me, I was just trying to find out why it is When we, who are big Disney geeks, keep going back to the theme parks and we tell our friends, well, I'm going to go to Disney World for a week, and our friends and our relatives look at us kind of weird and go, again, she was there last year? What is it about this place? I wanted to answer that question. What is it about these physical spaces that are meaningful and functional and that touch us in such a way that we want to keep coming back again and again? And through my exploration, the research for the book, what I had learned is that Walt and his Imagineers were just very talented at this timeless way of building, creating a way of building real worlds, even although they weren't inauthentic worlds. Uh, and creating places that really touch our heart and souls. And, and a lot of the book is the explanation as to why we have these feelings, why these certain patterns come together and make us love standing in the hub or looking at the Tomorrowland entry gate or sitting in New Orleans Square feeling like we're really in a New Orleans that never really existed, that sort of thing.
1: And, and that's what makes it interesting. It's in, in some ways, I think, and you see this in... Kind of throughout the parks is it's a it's a city it's a it's a place that never existed but exists in your mind in some way um,
2: exactly you, it, exactly it's, it's the collective consciousness of all of us and and I think that was one of the other things there's a there's a guy in the book that I talk about a lot his name is Christopher Alexander he kind of, he was my mentor in planning and, and really the genius of planning that I thought and Christopher Alexander had a really great observation after 30 years of research, which was that no matter what culture, what reality, what nationality, wherever we're from, ultimately our personalities need 90% of the same thing. We are 90% the same as any other human, but we spend 90% of our time focused on that other 10%. What Walt did, in speaking in a universal language, What Christopher Alexander advocates in his way of approaching design is a way that appeals to the 90%. Therefore, it's something that touches all of us. And, and it's, it's fascinating how these two guys who never knew each other, whose paths never crossed each other, really have a lot of the same thinking about how you create places and spaces. And I, I, when, when, that, when that light bulb went off on my head, all of a sudden a book came out of it.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool because um, conceptually, you know, I, I think Walt just had some really unique ideas. He had a unique perspective on the world uh, that I don't think you see too many people have, at least not in prominent positions. But it's really kind of neat to think about the fact that he... He thought about things differently. He kind of put it in a different perspective. He sliced it differently, so everyone could he could he could capture that.
2: Yeah, yeah. And you know, he had this one gift that, at that, all the research that I've seen, he had this one real special gift, and that is he had the gift of observation. He just was really curious, really fascinated. He, he liked people, and he liked watching people, and and he would always put himself empirically picking up the data. So, you know, the reason why Main Street is as wide as it is, because the places that he visited that felt right, the streets were that wide and he measured them. Um, uh, the trash cans are spaced in such a way so that you could put a hot dog wrapper between the two trash cans. Yeah, A lot of the stuff was empirical. If you look on Main Street at any of the uh, Magic Kingdom or Disneyland, you'll notice, and actually throughout the parks, you'll notice the doors are not at 90-degree angles. They're always cut at the corner because, as he said, only military soldiers turn 90-degree corners. Hmm. So he was... Uh, He watched how people reacted. He watched how people moved through spaces, and then he took the best of what he observed and tried to make something out of that. And and you know what? Today we don't do that. Today we either read guidebooks or instruction manuals, or we just do it because we think that we're smarter than the public and we're afraid to admit that maybe if we just sat back and observed them a little bit, we'd find some amazing things from them.
1: That, that's a remarkable thing. I know you quoted Ray, Ray Bradbury in your book, and uh, you, you, uh, Ray calls him an optimal behaviorist, and I, I think that's a, yeah. that, that's a great term. That's a, that's a nice way to kind of think of it.
2: Um, yeah, yeah, that, that is that is a terrific way of looking at life now, isn't it? And there's a there's a fabulous quote, and I'm sure I'm going to kind of mess it up a little bit here. Of Lillian Disney, which I thought always really expressed uh, what Walt was about. I mean, who better to know about Walt than his wife, right? Of course, yeah. She once said um, she once said that Walt was enthusiastic and optimistic. That he he was always really excited about anything and everything, and he never thought anything would ever go bad. Hmm. And, you know, think about it. You name an executive that runs a major corporation a day that has that kind of outlook towards life being enthusiastic and optimistic. <laughs> that, that, was, that was Walt, man. I was very, very fascinated to hear that. that
1: that's an amazing quote. I, I think that's that that's remarkable right there. Um, yeah. Because you know, Walt, Walt is one of my – the people – you know, I grew up in Florida. I, I grew up going to Disney World pretty regularly. I was six when the park opened, so, you know, I was, <laughs> I was going pretty regularly. Uh, and – it was just a remarkable place. It, it captured my imagination at that age, and it still captures my imagination today. And I've read pretty much every book about Walt Disney that's come out because I was fascinated by the man. I'm, I'm just totally, you know, it's just, a, it's, he's an amazing person. And I think for me, that's one of the reasons that I got into the field I got into. I'm, I'm actually a human factors type person. And it, it's that same kind of thing about watching people and understanding why things kind of work for people that really kind of, you know, I, I kind of... I, Somewhere in the back of my mind, I'm going there's there's a Walt in there somewhere from reading all these books and just picking up all these little pieces of knowledge. and it, It's really remarkable to me just to think about the, the fact that he really was that kind of a person, that that's who he is or was, um, and he's really kind of put it together.
2: Yeah, yeah. You know, you can also claim, it by now that you've expressed what your age is, you can say you're as old as the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Oh, there
1: you go. I, <laughs> I like it.
2: <laughs> and for those who don't know what the Reedy Creek Improvement District is, um, from an urban planner point of view, uh, the parks and everything are just absolutely fabulous. But what's even more amazing is that the law that controls the land use regulation for the Florida property – Gives the Walt Disney Company more power than most counties in the United States have, most elected governments have, and that legal document was known as the Reedy Creek Improvement District. It, it, it goes so far as to allowing Disney, as long as it follows international protocols, to be able to build an airport and a nuclear power plant on their property, and the state of Florida couldn't say anything about it. So
1: <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know... it's, it's, it's
2: quite, it's a quite amazing
1: document. It really is, and you can still see the name Reedy Creek show up. It's. Uh... Uh, it's like on the um, on the fire trucks is the Reedy Creek Fire Department and so forth, so that, that shows up.
2: It's, uh, it's the reason the whole area doesn't flood and why you don't get attacked
1: by mosquitoes because of the Greedy Creek Improvement There you go. That's it exactly. So it's very cool that, you know, he, he, even, even before he died, he was thinking about these things. You know, how do I build something? Even if, you know, Progress City was still in the future for him, how do I build something that, that becomes, you know, greater than that. I, I'm building a theme park, but it's more than that, because you have this improvement district and you've thought about the waterways and the and the parking structures and how do I get people in and out.
2: And and, and what I think a lot of people don't realize is that Walt was really done with the theme park. He was really done with Disneyland by the early 60s, pretty much by the time the Matterhorn submarine, and the monorail opened in, in the summer of 1959. His biggest interest was, of course, still trying to get audio animatronics off of the ground, so he's still fascinated by animating those things. But He pretty much set the template, turned to Ron Miller, turned to the rest of the company guys, and said, you know what, you guys run the studio. You make the movies. You guys know what I expect out of Disneyland. I'm going to turn my attention to these other three projects. I'm going to turn my attention to Arts and to Epcot and to Mineral King. I'm going to focus all of my energies on creating these three cities. And had pretty much by that time, I had left show business. He really, you know, he would do the Walt Disney Presents, and he would do his little stand-up bits. And but that was about it. Other than the movie Mary Poppins and to a certain extent Jungle Book, he really was hands off on most of the theatrical production. He was very, very much into this this, this quest for community about a really good book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> very cool. You know, it, it's it's just really interesting to uh, to to think about him and the fact that he, he put that much effort into it. I've heard other stories that you know, in some ways, the um, the theme park was sort of a means to an end for him. Uh, that the uh, the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World was was sort of a way to make money to be able to pay for his dreams. Uh, oh,
2: yeah, 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 most most certainly. I mean, he, he knew that, and that's the reason why the Magic Kingdom is way at the north end of the project uh, property. It was the weenie, uh, the beckoning hand, the thing that called you forward, and and he knew that this was going to be the cash register that would allow him to build the city. But you would have had to pass through the city before you got to the theme park, so he's going to be able to deliver to American corporations, millions of visitors who had no choice but to experience the, the city of Epcot, which I, I think would have just been absolutely spectacular. Okay. Uh, uh, and, and unfortunately, it never did get built. And I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years walking through this imaginary city I was fortunate prior to the death of Buzz Price, who was the guy who literally founded the location for Disneyland and Walt Disney World. I interviewed him, and, and Buzz was thoroughly convinced that this would have worked. It would have financially penciled out. Uh, it had all of the qualities to be that kind of a success. And it, it, it's, it's kind of a tragedy in a way. It never got built, but it's been a... A fascinating journey kind of walking through it mentally and seeing what it might have been like.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Um, You know, just kind of seeing it superficially on the outside here, it's fascinating to me. I can only imagine what it would have been like to walk through it, Um, at least in your mind's eye, and, you know, kind of doing it that way.
2: And, and, it, and it, I mean, if you think about it, you've got this wonderful hotel in the center of it with a transportation center, and then you would have walked through something that would have felt like Liberty Square or New Orleans Square, which actually was a test bed for this kind of thematic design that would have been between this transportation center and the apartment buildings that surrounded the outside of it. And that distance between that center core and that outside edge was only about 1,500 feet, or, you know, roughly three city blocks for a lot of cities, two, two big city blocks. Huh. And um, so it was a fairly it was a fairly compact idea. Those who had been on the people mover, not so much the one in Florida, but the one here in California, the people mover was designed specifically as a test for Epcot. It was here as a test bed. Walt knew that he was going to go and he was going to put it in Epcot first, and put it in in Disneyland because he knew his way of testing the technology. <laughs> so, cool. so the, the guy was the guy was just amazing and thinking so far ahead of anybody in the world, and especially his own crew.
1: And, and that's that's incredible. Uh, just you know, kind of conceptually that he was doing all these things and kind of testing them out to get them there. I, I'm just I'm fascinated by that. Um, Wonder if you could tell us a little bit about, you know, maybe what this city might have looked like, just give us a little uh, glimpse into it perhaps?
2: Sure, it would have been a a lot different of experience. So let's say we were to arrive. We would have either arrived by airplane at its own airport, and the airport would have been down kind of where Celebration is. At one time, there was talk of what was going to be a radial airport. Uh, It was going to be, you would land on a slightly curved, inclined uh, runway, and your plane would come straight up into the terminal. Thankfully, that idea didn't fly very
0: far. (laughs) But that
2: went away pretty quickly. Um, You would not drive your car at Disney World. Uh, you You would have parked your car at a giant transportation center That was right off the expressway and you would have used disney transportation so you would have parked your car probably parked it for the entire week you would either take shuttle buses or a people mover to a little cluster of motels down on the south end or you would board the monorail the monorail would go north through the property kind of roughly where world drive is today while you're on the monorail the first thing you'll pass through is an industrial park where American corporations can show off their latest technology, and it was based off of the Stanford Industrial Park that was a pretty hot item at the time in the, the 50s. Uh, so you would have been able to see American corporations. So everybody who went to the theme park had to pass by all these industrial exhibits first. Then you would have entered the city of Epcot, which would have had a skyscraper about 30 stories, very Salik Tower, there's a transportation center where the monorail had stations with people movers, and the people movers were the local transportation that would take you out towards a variety of different uh, destinations. If, let's say, we're in the center of that, Epcot, you could keep going north on the monorail, and at the very north end would have been the Magic Kingdom and a cluster of hotels, golf courses, and things there. For the city of Epcot, the city of Epcot, imagine, if you will, a flower. And at the very center of the flower was the transportation center, this giant hotel, and, and a sort of an indoor theme park uh, that would have had like something like the Country Bear Jamboree or Circle Vision Theater or some sort of an attraction at the very center. There would have been a reason to go to the downtown of Epcot just for entertainment alone. Surrounding this center core would have been a series of shops, that would have been themed uh, internationally, so there would have been like a New Orleans Square, a Liberty Square, a little French area, a little Italian area, and each of these slices of the pie, each of these petals of this flower, would be separated by people mover tracks, which would not only take you outside of this enclosed central city, but would give you a preview of the different sh- kinds of shops, just like the people mover does today, giving you a complete preview of the Tomorrowland area. So you can go shopping, you can go dining, and then surrounding this area are going to be a bunch of corporate office buildings where workers who live in the city can go to their offices. So this creates uh, a critical mass of people, which will make for a very successful retail center. And then surrounding this circle of offices would have been another circle of apartment buildings where employees, cast members would live and walk straight through the middle to get on the monorail to go to work or shops wherever they needed to go. That would have all been enclosed in a climate-controlled environment. Walt certainly knew that Florida weather really sucked, and <laughs> un- I probably is probably mostly frustrated with the fact that none of his employees ever figured that out. And so, why do we keep building all these outdoor theme parks? He wanted to put it all indoors. Outside of this covered city would have been a green belt with community buildings, workshops, places for the community members, parks, recreational spaces. And then surrounding that would have been a very low-density single-family and little duplexes where more of the cast members could live. And it would be like a giant cruise ship. People who lived in the city had to work in the city, and they would live there generally for about nine months and then rotate out and somebody else would move in their place.
1: And that, that's one of the interesting things to me. You know, it's, it's this whole concept that you don't have any permanent residence there. It becomes right. this sort of international community that, uh, that people move in and out of in some way. Um.
2: Yeah, the governance, I think, was probably the most difficult issue, and that's one of the areas where Epcot would have truly been revolutionary. I mean, quite honestly, from an urban design point of view, a lot of what Walt was proposing was rather evolutionary, so just took advantage of good planning principles, but how he was going to do governance would have been truly forward-leaning. Now, today, you know, we've got covenants and restrictions and condo complexes that are as strict as anything that Disney was going to think of for Epcot, and the law supports it, so... Once again they were they were way way ahead of their time when they were working on this project
1: and that's that's what that's what I love to hear is just how far ahead of his time he really was um, yeah. one of these visionaries so uh, you yeah, i really I really find the, uh, the the topic interesting and fascinating just kind of how this all fits together and um, it, it's it's a really a remarkable concept that Walted Walt had come up with and I you know i think your your take on it is just amazing cuz you really walked through it i've never heard of anybody kind of walking through it it's always been in the back of my mind how do you get from point a to point b you know he had this idea you saw the video you saw the film of him that's available on youtube of him saying talking about his city and that's great but that was it you know and that's all anybody really had to go on Um,
2: got to you really have to work backwards, too, because, you know, he did the same thing. He did his studio when he moved from the Hyperion Studio to the Burbank Studio. The Burbank Studio was probably the one time in his entire life he got to do whatever he wanted with no constraints or any compromises, because at the time he had plenty of money, so he invented the perfect animation movie studio, is what he tried to create. And then when he moved to Holmby Hills, he did the same thing with his house. And a lot of the bits and pieces of Disneyland really are a reflection of the guy's house, (laughs) which is pretty pretty remarkable. So he, throughout his entire life, he was sort of exploring with bits and pieces of this remarkable place-making ability, and that's why I think that by the time he ended up building his own city, it was going to work. It was going to be like almost everything else he touched. It was going to really work. And it, and it would have, I think it would have really, really wowed. I think even more, it would have touched people even more than the Walt Disney World that we see today. It would have been, been truly something unique on this earth. <laughs> and, uh, and I would have loved to visit it. <laughs> uh, you know, it's one of those things. Yeah.
1: That- after I, after I saw the video again as, as an adult, um, and it was within the last five years, I was watching it on YouTube, and I saw the video, and I'm watching it, and the way they kind of cut away from Walt and then went to this, you know, the, the guy talking about the, the city, it kind of, in the back of my mind, I'm going, gee, I, I wonder... If- what Walt's vision really was. You know, I I always kind of wondered what, what he really had in mind because he was so much more visionary and clearly what they had built was not it, but where were they going to go? You know, and he had these, he had these interesting ideas and then you, you hear different little bits and pieces. And this is the one that fills in most of the blanks, I think. Um, your book. Really- you know, I, I got really lucky. By, by writing
2: the book, it's given me an opportunity to also meet a lot of other really important figures within <laughs> the business history. And I had a chance recently to sit with Marty Sklar. You know, <laughs> oh, gee. lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> As a fanboy, sitting with Marty Sklar at his house. I mean, really, what, what could you have, right? Hey, Mr. Sklar. Satting <laughs> with the guy. Here's the guy who wrote that Epcot speech, the right. television show that you were just talking about. Yes. Marty wrote the script. And, and Marty said that the same thing with Mineral King, because I'm giving a presentation of at the Walt Disney Family Museum about Mineral King, and we were, that was the primary topic, but we were talking about, of course, everything. And and Epcot, like Mineral King, yeah. like Disneyland, are all a reflection of one simple concept in Walt's mind. He just wanted it to do it better. He he loved he loved amusement parks, but he thought they were dirty and kind of mean and ugly. So he wanted to do it better, and that became Disneyland. Mm-hmm. He he didn't really like cities very much, so he wanted to do it better. and He wanted to create Epcot. He loved skiing, and his family was really big into skiing, but he didn't really like ski resorts very much, so he just wanted to do it better. He, he never went to art college. In fact, he didn't really go to school very much at all, but he knew there was a way of doing a cross-pollination of the arts, and so he wanted to do it better, and he came up with CalArts. Once again, really, how many people are out there are like this, where their own personality is, I think I could do this better, so I'm going to go ahead and do it. <laughs>
1: An amazing figure. It, it really, and there, you're right. There are, is almost nobody like that. Certainly not in, in the public eye. That's a, I've got some stature. Um, you know, I, I think there are some some smaller scale people who don't get the attention, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, a remarkable, it's a remarkable story, and um, I encourage you know, my listeners to go out and pick it up. It's Walt and the Promise of Progress City. Um, you can pick it up at Amazon and Amazon on the Kindle, uh, a lot of different sources. I'll put a link to it on my show notes, of course, so you can get a copy of it. Um, you can also visit uh, Sam's blog. It's samlandisney.blogspot.com, and it's kind of a cool blog. Uh, you look at a lot of different things in there that I found kind of interesting. I was enjoying reading through it the other day.
2: Thank you, and I also uh, write a weekly column for my, page, my Chat, on Thursdays. Ah, perfect—the uh, Sam Land column on uh, my Chat, So please visit there as well.
1: You know, and it was funny because I was—I was, th- was thinking—is that the same Sam? Because I, I read that column several times, but I just didn't put two and two together until just now. Yep. I'm am d- doing good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so what a, you know what a, what do you have next? Uh, what do you have coming up next? Anything interesting that you're doing? I heard you say you're going to be at the Disney Family Museum giving a, a talk.
2: Well, the next big one is going to be that uh, on uh, uh, later January, January the 21st. I don't know when this is going to be running. I- I've been invited to speak at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco in the Presidio. Nice. We're going to be talking about the subject of Mineral King. I'm going to be joined by two extraordinary guests. Uh, one person is David Price. David Price is Buzz Price's son. Uh, David Price and I are good friends, just a fascinating guy an architect and a theme park designer uh, today. And my other special guest is just just floored me when he agreed to do this is Ron Miller. Uh, Ron Miller was the former CEO of Walt Disney Productions. Mm-hmm. He's married to Diane Disney Miller. He was Walt's son-in-law. And Ron was fundamentally uh, an, an important player in the Squaw Valley Olympics, which Walt was the pageantry chairman and was at the forefront of the development of the ski resort in Mineral King. And so Ron, uh, from what I One of the first few times he's ever really spoken at the museum that he was a founder of is going to be my guest and telling personal stories about Walt skiing, what the family's reaction was with Mineral King. Um, I continue to write for my blog, continue to write write also for the other uh, stuff. I'll be doing a signing at Walt's Barn in May and other various book signings around the country uh, throughout the winter and spring here.
1: Very cool. So you can uh, keep an eye out for Sam Genoway at different places as you uh, as you look at his book. And be sure and pick up a copy of it. It's a, it's a great read. It's a lot of fun. And it, I agree with uh, another review I, I read it, that it's kind of like it almost makes you feel sad that you didn't get to see what his vision was.
2: I you know, didn't mean to make that happen, but yes, I, I understand. Well, this has been absolutely terrific, and I, I really appreciate the uh, the opportunity to speak with your listeners and, and, and engage in this. This is utterly fascinating stuff, and I think we all are probably coming from the same school, which is we just want to absorb more now, don't we?
1: Oh, absolutely. Now I just want to go back and just take it in a little more and think about how big the street is and things like that. It's you know, <laughs> It's time. That's right. Well, Sam, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you very, very, very much. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now.
0: From all of us, thanks for taking a listen to the podcast today. If you're standing, please hold on to the handrails and stay clear of the doors until the show stops completely and the doors open. Ladies and gentlemen, please collect your personal belongings, watch your head and step, and take small children by the hand. As this concludes our journey, we hope that you enjoyed the show and that you drive home safely. Our thanks go to Doug at geekacres.net for his contributions to the show. And also to Craig for the original music you hear on the show. You can find Craig's music over at ReverbNation.com slash sound A. If you have questions, comments, or thoughts about the show, please feel free to contact Dave at DisneyView at gmail.com show notes, and links to other great content on the web can be found at DisneyPodcast.net Now I will raise the safety bar and a podcaster will follow you home!